Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, please open up with me to Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, uh, page 277. If you want to follow along in the Blue Bibles or our text uh, is in your bulletins this morning. Well, it has been a long uh, and winding road, uh, but we have come to the end of Second Samuel. Uh, we made it together. You're still here. Uh, I'm still here uh, having preached through it. Uh, and in just a few moments, I'm going to continue uh, the reading that was started earlier. And uh, we'll take it all the way through the end of the chapter today. As I do so, and as I read this for us, please uh, remember that not only are we at the, obviously, the last chapter of the book, the conclusion of the book, but we're at the conclusion of a very carefully constructed conclusion. Uh, it started back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, this, this last portion of the book, this conclusion. And if you recall, in chapter 21, we had a story, an event recorded for us about a sin of King Saul, Israel's first king, uh, and the consequences that that brought upon the people of Israel and the necessity of David making atonement for that sin. The section that I'm reading for today, the entirety of uh, chapter 24, parallels that account. If that account was a sin of Saul that led to uh, this plague upon the people, the famine in the land, then here in chapter 24, we see a sin of David that leads to a plague upon the land and the necessity of atonement being made as well. Now, it may seem to us like, well, this is kind of an odd ending uh, to the book. It really doesn't wrap in a way that we would find perhaps, at least initially here, to be satisfying. It's not perhaps the way that we would choose to end this. Uh, but remember this, it is carefully and it is deliberately chosen. It's, it's a very careful structure that we have here. So it's no accident that we have this story wrapping up really not only 2 Samuel, but 1 and 2 Samuel as well. So uh, Nick read for us earlier through verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10 again for us and then continue till the end of this chapter. This is the word of God. It was the word of God for the people of Israel at the time that it, that it was written. It is the word of God for us today. Hear it. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or... Shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the author of this word through the power of your spirit, that it is a living word, not a dead word, but a living word that speaks to your people in every generation and every time. 3,000 years ago, this event took place. We pray that as we read it today, that you would speak to us and speak to us clearly of what it means for us and how we as your people are to understand it, to trust in you, to hope in you, to apply this word in our own lives. Be with us through the power of your spirit, through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody loves a good discount. We love to go to the store or go online and find things that are on sale. And we love the feeling of getting a sweet deal on any particular purpose, purchase. We're glad to have it. And sometimes if we end up paying full price for something, we kind of feel like we missed out. We kind of feel like, well, we paid full price on this, but perhaps if we had waited for the next upcoming holiday or the next event, there would have been a sale, and somehow this paying of full price doesn't seem to us to be exactly right. We missed out on a chance to have saved a few dollars. Now, I titled the sermon today, The Full Price. 
And the reason that I called it the full price is there's a parallel. This passage is recorded as well. This event is recorded as well in the book of First Chronicles. And there, when David responds to Arana, whose name is Ornan, uh, in, the, uh, in the account in Chronicles, David says, no, but I will buy it for the full price. I will not offer to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrifices that cost me nothing. David says the full price. He could have gotten the land for the altar and eventually this land for the temple. He could have gotten it at a bargain basement price. He could have gotten it for free. Arana says, go ahead, take it. It's all yours. But David says, no, no, no. I need to pay the full price for it. What is the value of a life? What is the purchase price for a sinful Israel and their sinful king? How much do you need to pay to have your sins atoned for? How many sacrifices are needed to turn a curse into a blessing? To have the anger of God satisfied Isaiah 12, where we opened up our worship today, to have the anger of God satisfied so that the angry face of God is turned to a smiling face of God and so that instead of the destruction that we're receiving at the present time, we instead receive from the Lord salvation and comfort and blessing. What is the cost of securing a people for God's own possession? What's the charge for reconciliation with God? And is there any king who can pay it? Is there a king who can pay the cost? There are big questions like that in this concluding text. But we need to work our way up to them because there are, quite honestly and speaking quite plainly, there are some tricky spots in this passage as well. So we've got to work our way uh, to get up to some of the big questions, and I want to walk our way together through this passage. And I want to start with verse 1 because the, the questions and the difficulties kind of come up immediately here for us. So let's spend a few moments here in verse 1 setting up what's taking place in the passage. We read this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again. We start with again. This is not the first time the anger of the Lord has been kindled against Israel. It will not be the last time that the anger of the Lord is kindled against them. And this anger of the Lord, and we won't look at all of the passages, the many passages that we could to demonstrate this, but this anger of the Lord is always a righteous anger. It is always a perfectly justified anger. It is always deserved, and it is always dangerous. Okay? It is the anger of the Lord that is turned right now against his people. And we're not told exactly why the Lord was angry with his people. We're not told here what sin it was in particular that caused the Lord to be angry with his people. I've reminded of this a couple of, of, of this, of us of this a couple of times, that in this conclusion, we're not working through events chronologically right now. We're pulling various events from the life of David, from the history of Israel together to form this conclusion uh, that we've got here. So we don't know 
Was it a lack of faithfulness on the part of, their, of the people? Had they drifted away from the Lord, drifted into idolatry? Uh, was it a result of the uh, rebellion? that took place under Absalom and under Sheba, the people following after them, did they not repent after that? Uh, we don't know exactly what it was. We can assume that whatever event is being referred to here, it refers to the period after which David has become the king over both Israel and Judah, because of course the census is going to be taken of Israel uh, and Judah as well. But we don't know exactly what it was. The Lord is angry with his people, that we know, and that is dangerous. The next phrase, and he incited David against them. He incited David against them. Now, if that were the only thing that I needed to explain, that would be hard enough, right? It'd be hard enough to sit here and try and explain how it is that God decides, I'm angry with my people, so I'm going to incite David to do something for which I can punish not only David, but the people as well. That would be a challenge to explain, but let me make it harder on myself, but true to the word of God. So I told you that in 1 Chronicles 21, you've got another retelling of this event. Let me read you the first verse from that. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay? Then Satan incited Israel, or incited David against Israel, and incited David to number Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. How much time would you like to spend now uh, talking about this and uh, working through it. I think it could take a sermon or two, uh, but I don't want to do that. I don't think it's the main thing that God has for us today in this section. Uh, I do not want you, I'm going to tell you something right now, I do not want you to turn to it right now. Uh, in your bulletins, after the service, after the listing of the service, the benediction and the postlude, I included two sections from the Westminster Confession, from chapter 3 of God's eternal decree and from chapter 5 on providence. Both of those are attempts to deal with issues like the ones that are raised in these two texts. Uh, so you can look at them later and see technically how do we deal with those in confessional precise language. But what I want to do is I want to give you a way to understand it. I'm not going to give you six options. Uh, I'm going to give you a way to understand what is taking place in these two texts. First of all, 2 Samuel chapter 24, our text for today, is emphasizing the ultimate sovereignty of God over all things, including sin. There's nothing that takes place in this world that is not under the ultimate sovereign control of God. That's the em emphasis that is in 2 Samuel. In 1 Chronicles, we are dealing with the instrumentality of Satan in this particular situation. So God's sovereignty is the concern here in 2 Samuel 24. The instrumentality of Satan is the concern in the Chronicles passage. And then in both of the passage, the, the passages assert and confirm that the responsibility for the anger and for the judgment of God that is poured out rests squarely upon one, Israel, because it's Israel who has sinned, and two, David, because David is sinning in this as well. Think of the book of Job, 
Think of the beginning of the book of Job. Or if you want to consider this uh, in another place in Scripture, all you have to think of is the crucifixion. Okay, the, the, the crucifixion is the exact same story as this. It happened according to the sovereign will and purposes of God. It's the worst sin that ever took place in history. God planned it. God crushed him. It also happened through the instrumentality of Satan. Satan waited for an opportune time after the temptation when he could return and try to undo this anointed one who had come in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The instrumentality of Satan in the crucifixion is likewise clear, and the responsibility that belongs, one, to all of humanity, and two, to Herod, to Pilate, to Judas. Right? Specifically. Specifically. It, those, those men are responsible for that. It's the exact same situation that we have here. You can say all three of those things, but we don't want to deny the responsibility that belongs to Israel and to David. All right, so continuing on. Go number Israel and Judah. David calls then for this census to be taken, which clearly David and the Lord will see as sinful. Now, if you had never read any other parts of Scripture, you might look at this and go, okay, well, it's clear then. The census was wrong. It was wrong to take the census. But we're going to have to look at that a little bit. Because in a, in a surprising twist, Joab receives the command. Joab and the commanders receive the command from the king and Joab somehow has enough insight to say, something is wrong here. Something is amiss with this. Something is not right. And Joab, of all people, tries to dissuade David from pursuing this thing because he, I mean, when Joab can figure out that something is wrong uh, and David can't, you know, something's going on here that is blinding eyes uh, that's not allowing David to think clearly or see clearly about what is taking place here. So, so here's, here's the tricky thing about this. We're not told exactly what the sin is. What, what did David do that was wrong? A census wasn't necessarily wrong. God twice commanded Moses to take a census in uh, the book of Numbers. And in Exodus chapter 30, God provided instructions for how to take a census. What does a census mean? What are you supposed to do in a census? So if, if a census isn't wrong in and of itself, then you have to look at this situation and go, okay, what is wrong? What, what was the sin here of which David is guilty that was going to have such dire consequences upon the people of Israel. We're left with possibilities. We're left with the possibility, and many people have recognized this looking at the text, uh, to be able to say that something was off with David's motives here, or perhaps something was off with David's methodology for taking this census, or perhaps it's a combination of both things. Perhaps there's, there's something off in his motives and there's something off in his methodology for the census as well. Again, I'm not going to give you 18 options. I'm going to tell you what I think about this. In terms of motives, I think that David slipped into a trust in man. 
a pride for kind of his accomplishments, the building of the kingdom that took place under his uh, leadership. And I think he, in this moment, is saying kind of, I want to see. I want to see the armies that are out there that I've uh, built up, that that even the Lord has built up under me. But I'm the one who's done it, and I want to know how strong and how secure we are. This will be akin to, and you, you can look at this later, this was the kind of thing that we confessed in our confession today. So you can, you can see what I think is some of the spirit of this in our own confession, and you can look at this that later. But I think in addition to that, that David missed the significance and the weightiness and the meaning and method of a census. Now, I don't know how to convey this. I I tried to think of a way of conveying this without reading the passage from Exodus because it's kind of technical, but I couldn't figure it out. And so I want to read this passage. If if you want to read with me, you can turn to Exodus chapter 30. Um, If not, you can just listen as I read this. I want to read this passage where God provides instructions about the census. And as I read it, I want you to pay close attention to some of the words that are here, words like ransom and offering and payment and atonement. They they are words that you might not immediately associate with a census and that help get to frame what a census is for Israel. All right, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. A census is serious business. A potential plague exists with respect to a census. You need to give a ransom for your life when a census is taken. Of course, a plague is exactly what we see in this passage in 2 Samuel. All right, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall give not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. That's the weightiness of a census, of of what is taking place. So a census isn't merely a head count. You know, how many, how many are out there? You may have seen sometimes our ushers are taking a head count out there. Be careful with that. Um, but a census, in its formal sense, isn't just a head count. You know, how many people do we have? How many are in the household? How many bathrooms do you have? Etc. What's your household income? And things like that. Instead, it is a counting or a recounting of the people whom God has redeemed. And every single person, doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, that's why the price is the same on both in this particular offering. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, you are precious and you are valued 
in the sight of God. Each one was bought with a price. And so a census then becomes a call to an opportunity to worship the Lord who redeemed your life. And so when the census taker comes around and he, whatever, points at you, indicates you, you go, praise God that I'm a redeemed person and part of the community of God. Here's my offering. Here's my offering. Here's what I give back to the Lord who has ransomed me, who has bought me into life and brought me into life as well. You give the offering in thankful acknowledgement of and engagement in your atonement. So for them, it wasn't just an atonement that took place when the Lord took them out of Egypt sometime in the back. It was an, in the past. It was an active participation in a living atonement that took place. And so when they came and when they gave their half shekel, it was a way of saying, I'm in. I'm in. I'm fully engaged in this atonement that God has accomplished on my behalf. Neither the census taker nor the numbered should take it lightly. Somehow, that process or that motive is off in this census, and we end up with a plague and lives lost, which is exactly the warning that we heard about in Exodus chapter 30. All right, now let me go through the main part then, or this next major section of this. I'm going to actually go through it now fairly quickly. Those are the primary questions. So Joab and the commanders, although reluctantly, they complete the census in about nine and a half months. They report to David, and David's conscience is awakened, right? David's conscience is awakened. We see that in verse 10 of our passage. David's heart struck him. As soon as he hears the numbers reported, whatever, the blinders fall off of his eyes, and he realizes what he's done uh, before the Lord, and he makes his confession. We see the heart of every Christian when we find ourselves to be in sin, we hate it, we see it, we've done it, we can't deny the fact that we've done it, we feel horrible about the fact that we've done it, we confess it, and we plead for mercy. And we plead for mercy before the Lord because we have sinned against him. But as we have seen throughout this book, sin can be forgiven and still also have consequences. So the prophet Gad, the seer, comes and presents the options, the options to David for this judgment. David knows that even in God's wrath, he is fundamentally a God of mercy, and so he places himself in God's hands. That's verse 14. I'm in great distress. Let me not fall into the hand of man, uh, but instead let me fall into the hand of God, for his mercy is great. And after a significant loss of life, we read that the Lord comes up to Jerusalem. The angel that the Lord has sent, the angel of the Lord with his sword, approaches Jerusalem, and the Lord stops the angel and says to him powerful words, it is enough. It's enough. Stay your hand. Put the sword down, if you will, Stay your hand. But verse 17 of our passage takes us kind of back into this scene, back into the angel's destruction. And the moment the angel has come to this place, and David is given a vision of this angel for the rest of Israel, 
it would have just looked like a plague, right? This, this was a plague that was taking place here, and people were dying from this plague. But David has the vision and is enabled to see that, in fact, this is directly from God, and it is the angel who is the hand of God responsible for meeting out this just judgment and anger of God. And David says these words that frankly frame and reframe the entirety of First and Second Samuel. David spoke to the angel. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. Behold, I have sinned and done wickedly. Another acknowledgement by David of what he has done. And yea and amen. You have sinned and you have done that which is wicked. But these sheep, what have they done? Now the Lord could have stopped David right there and said, actually a lot, actually quite a bit. It's actually them that I'm angry with. It's actually my anger at them that is the cause of all of this. They've done a lot. They've rebelled against me, David. They have sinned. But David says, what have they done? And instead, David says, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Point the sword at me. The great hope of kingship in Samuel was that Israel would have a king who would be able to protect them by his power and by his unifying presence, by his command over all of the peoples of God, that this king would be able to protect them from the enemies who were all around them. And we've seen that, right? We've seen the Philistines and all of the problems that were around them. We've seen the mighty men who were defeating the Philistines and who were defeating others. And now we see that the protection provided by the king comes from the king not being able to slay the enemy, but be, by saying as a king, point the wrath at me. Point it at my house. Point it at my progeny. Turn it against me. What Samuel has taught us and what Israel is learning is that sin is not the unique possession of uncircumcised Philistines. But instead it belongs to Israel as well and it belongs to kings as well. Atonement requires a king a king of Israel, but it needs to be a king from inside and from outside of this sinful, fallen humans, ra human race. A king's ransom is required. A king's ransom is required to atone for a king, for a nation, and for all the nations. In the meantime, in the meantime, until the coming of that king, the angel had stopped at the threshing floor of Arana, or Ornan, as I said, as he's called in First Chronicles, the Jebusite, a Gentile. There stops the angel. God commands that an offering, that, it, that an altar be set up, that an offering be made right there. Why right there? Why right in this place? Well, in one sense, because 
that's where the angel had stopped. And the angel stopped in that place because God told the angel to stop in that place. The sword is ready to go on to Jerusalem, the city of peace. And God says, nope, that's it, stop. Stop at that point. The Lord relents and ends it. Do you know where they are? Do you know where they are at this point? Where the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, is? It's on Mount Moriah. It's on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the mountain on which Abraham was told to take Isaac up and offer him. And Abraham has his sword, his, his blade ready to come down upon his son. And the Lord says, no, no, no. Stop. I've provided. And there's a ram in the thicket. Go get that and make that the offering. The angel of the Lord comes with the sword drawn, ready to execute the just wrath and vengeance of God. And God says, now, I know this place. Stop here. Stop here in this place. Altar offerings here now in this place. I will provide the offering. David then goes to make the purchase of the land. And pay attention to both of these men at this moment and what they are willing to pay to end this plague, this curse, this anger of God. David declares his intent. He's going to come there and he's going to establish this altar. And Arana offers it all. He says, oh my king, oh my king, listen, you can have all of this. You can have the land, you can have the oxen, you can have the wood uh, that the oxen use for their work. You can take that and you can burn the offerings with that wood. You take it all for free. Now, that would cost Arana everything, right? That was the price he was willing to pay for it. And of course, David declines the sale price. David says, no, no, I have to pay full price. The full cost, appeasement, reconciliation, and atonement require the full price being paid even by, or especially by, the king. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't interrupt the flow of what's going on here to say something to us by way of application. God does not want half-hearted token offerings. If your following of Christ costs you nothing, that may be exactly what it's worth. That may be exactly what it's worth. Be careful. Be aware of what is being said here. In your giving, in your serving, in the exercise of your spiritual gifts, in your participation in the life of the body, in the use of your time, in your relationships, in your engagement with the world, it should be a sacrifice. It should have real cost associated with it. Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, warns us. Be very careful not to rob God. How are we robbing you? Oh, you're bringing blemished offerings into the place and thinking, I don't know it. 
Bring the best. Bring the best offerings into this place. Lord, why aren't you hearing us? We're crying out to you. We're using all of the right words. We got all the creeds. We got the confessions. We got the Lord's Prayer. We got this. We got that. Because you're being unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. And he doesn't want half-heartedness. He doesn't want tokens. He wants all of us. Back to this story. In Samuel, the offerings of the king are then made and accepted. The final verse. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. But it's temporary. It's temporary. Again, the Lord will be angry with his people. Again, his people will fall away. Again, kings will fail. And so on this very site, we don't only need that which is taking place in the present or that which has taken place in the past. We need something that will take place in the future as well. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. We need more than just a temporary erected altar in this place. We need a temple here. And at that temple, we're going to have to have more bulls and we're going to have to have more goats and more lambs and more of all of the offerings that take place in this place. But here's the reality, because they're done over and over again, the blood of those bulls and goats finally can't atone. They can't pay for it. They may be a down payment, they may be a placeholder, but the cost is too high. They can't pay. For the atonement of the king, for the atonement of Israel, for the atonement that the nations need, it's not enough. The cost is too high. David says, I'll pay the full price. Relatively speaking, in the situation, okay. Problem is, David can't pay the full price. Ultimately, King David cannot pay the full price. They can only point. They can only point to the son of David. They can only point to Jesus Christ, the king who will come into this world, who will actually commit no sin, but who will become sin on our behalf so that the wrath of God that rightly belongs to us would fall upon him, the progeny of David. Point the sword at me and my house, the progeny, the one to come, who says, the sword's got to go in me. It has to be me who pays this cost. The front of your bulletins, Romans 5, is there. We have been justified. We have been ransomed by his blood. We have been saved by him from the wrath of God. How? Because the anger and the wrath of God was poured out on him. It was the full price paid. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Full payment has been made. Second Samuel then concludes with a flawed and faithful king who has sinned, repented, been humbled, and is now worshiping. It leaves us with the office of a king having been established, with the city of the king having been prepared, with the site of the temple having been secured. It leaves us, though, looking and longing for the king, the righteous and just and true and faithful king, to come. And so, when the New Testament then opens up, and we get the story of the birth of Christ, we get a story then of wise men, of wise men who come from the east, and they go to this city, to the city of the king, and they go to the king of the city of the king, and they say, Mr. Herod, King Herod, King Herod, can you tell us where the Christ was born? Can you tell us where the one was born who is the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Second Samuel sets us up for Christmas, for Easter as well, but it sets us up for Christmas. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that through your word you have given to us life. You've given to us hope. You show us Jesus again and again through your word. And for that, we are a thankful people. We pray that our response, a response of love and a response of joy, would be to give all of ourselves to you. Lord Jesus, make us like yourself. Take us home to be with you. We pray in your name. Amen.